The title of today's message is Facing Your Fears, especially Facing Your Fear with Prayer. And we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14. If you have your Bibles with you today, you can turn there. And as as you turn there, I don't know if you guys remember exact dates in your life, but I can tell you exactly where I was on January 3rd, 1989. You think that's kind of unusual. He's like, that's so long ago. And you remember exactly where you were? Well, I remember because I was in a a room on the sixth floor of the Hotel Wisconsin in downtown Milwaukee. The next day, I was to walk across the street at 0600 in the morning to a large blue building, which is a federal building there in Milwaukee, take the elevator up to military entrance processing station. And from there, I was shipping out to Fort Benning for basic training. Now, not that I would let anybody see it, but I was terrified. I was nervous. I was scared. I had that kind of fight or flight reflex happening that we just kind of want to run away from this situation. You see, I had grown up as a very small child. I didn't really start sprouting up until later in my teen years. And I didn't get into my towering height right now of five foot six and one half inches until I turned about 16 or 17. That one half inches is very important, by the way. In my middle school that I went to, we called it junior high there, happened to also be the juvenile delinquent school. It was where they sent all the hard cases. It just happened to be in the district that we lived in. And so my middle school was the place where all these hard cases got sent to for a little bit of extra, extra disciplinary attention. So what that meant for a socially awkward, short, small, skinny kid was I got bullied constantly. All the time, the bigger kids were bullying me physically, emotionally, and everything, every other way. I was always getting bullied. It got so bad for a while that I had routes picked in the hallways, even if it meant if I had like a, my next class was two doors down, but that two doors was around a blind corner where no teachers were, I would go up the stairs, over, above, and back down just to miss that area I knew the bullies were going to be congregating in and waiting for one of the smaller kids to walk through so they could pick on them. That was kind of how I spent much of my junior high years. In high school, though, I came into my own, so to speak, as a sports, martial arts. I got a brown belt. I got into a fight with a bully of the school at the time, and It didn't turn out well for him. But it still created within me a very deep-seated fear of being bullied and to be made stupid or weak or silly in front of other people. And now me, in my stupidity, just signed up for 10 weeks of it. 10 weeks of being bullied. 10 weeks of being made to look stupid. 10 weeks of being under the complete control of somebody else. And it sounded great in the recruiter's office. Hey, sign up for the army. You'll develop self-confidence. You'll earn the respect of your peers. You'll become a man. Oh yeah, to a kid with low self-esteem, that sounds great. To a kid who, who has always been worried about the opinion of other people's, that, that sounds wonderful. People will see me as a soldier and I won't, have to wor- and I won't ever have to, get, again, prove who I, that I'm a man, that I'm somebody worthy of people's respect. But now, that time in the recruiter's office, but now it's time to actually go and do it. 
It's time to actually earn the title of soldier. Did I say I was terrified? Did I say I was a little nervous at this point, sitting in a hotel room knowing the next day I was going, that night I was going to be in Fort Benning getting yelled at by drill sergeants? So I'm 18 years old, I'm sitting in my room with three other terrified guys. But of course, none of us are going to show it to each other. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to look weak to one another. We all had the false teenage bravado going on. But inwardly, I know we were all <gasps> shaking, thinking about what we had just signed up for. So I decided I'm going to go for a walk. I don't want to be hanging around these guys. And we went, I went down to the lobby, and I saw some pay phones. Remember pay phones? And I had a calling card that I had bought, so I was able to call home. And so I called home. I called my mom. Nobody answered. Called my dad. Got the answering machine. And I'm like, well, who else can I call? I don't want to call any of my friends and talk about this. I didn't really want to call my dad and talk about it, but, you know, he was the only other person to call. So it just came to me, call my grandpa. So I called my grandfather in Hayward. And many of you who have who have been around and listened to me for a while, you know how dear my grandfather was to me. If I have any attributes of being a biblical man or knowing biblical manhood in my own life, they came because of him. And him and I spoke for a few minutes on the phone and then that awkward silence sets in when two guys talk to each other on the phone of, okay, now what do we talk about? And he asked me, he said, now Johnny, why did you really call me? I can hear it in your voice that you're really nervous about something. I can hear it that you're scared about something. What is going on? I said, Grandpa, tomorrow I'm shipping out for basic training. And he goes, let me guess. You're scared to death. I said, yeah. I said, I, honestly, I just want to like go into the recruiting office and claim I'm gay so they kick me out or something. I mean, I don't want to have anything to do with this right now. I just, you know, I, I just, I don't want to do it. And he said, you know what? Even though your last name is Oscar, you have Anderson blood in you. You are tough, you're a Norwegian, and you will get through this. I got through it, I fought in a war. Your dad got through Navy basic training. He goes, everybody in your family has made it through this. Millions of people have made it through this. You will make it through this. And you'll make it through it because of who you are on the inside. And it gave me a lot of courage, and it gave me the motivation to get through that next 10 weeks. Jesus here in, in Mark 14 is finding himself in a similar situation. And I kind of imagine, and this is kind of, I guess, my imagination as I read the Bible, that I imagine before God the Father spoke the universe into existence, there was a planning meeting in heaven to plan all of this out. They discussed the grand design, him the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, discussing the grand design from the astrophysics of the cosmos to how many solar systems and how many planets, the exact number of asteroids in the asteroid belts, the amount of comets that would be flying around. Everything was going to be planned out from the, how big the galaxies were to the exact composition of every element. All this was being planned out in this meeting. They established the laws of physics. If you think about the laws of physics, Mankind is only a very rudimentary understanding of this so far. They change all the time. They change crying out loud. They can't even decide how, long, how old the earth is. 
and it constantly changes. I mean, mankind only has a very rudimentary understanding of the laws of physics. About the same amount as a two-year-old understand how a car works. He thinks as long as you turn the wheel, the car goes straight. I mean, that's about how much we understand physics. But here they are planning all this out before creation even began. And after they finished the creation plan, and they saw how majestic and how incredible it was, they found it was missing something. You see, just as a human artist can create a work of art, we can create sculptures, we can create paintings, the authors can uh, create great literary works of art. You can't fellowship with it, though. You can't have a relationship with it. So as awesome as this creation was that they were making, they couldn't relate with it. They couldn't have a relationship with it. And for that, you need a living thing. And not just any living thing, but something that has a choice to want to, to be in fellowship with you, to have communion with you, to choose to be in that relationship with you. Problem is, is that once you give something a choice, they have a, a choice to choose wrongly, don't they? That creates a problem. If they choose wrongly, then God in his righteous and holy nature can't fellowship with them. His righteous and holy nature demands that sin has to be punished. And that's where the cross came in. And I imagine during this planning meeting that this idea of Jesus dying for the sins of humanity came about. And this part, you know, some of this is my imagination, but this part I know happened. Because the Bible says it several times throughout the scriptures that the Lamb of God was slain from the creation of the world. The cross was part of the original plan. Jesus in that planning meeting volunteered to be that Lamb. And what sounded great and necessary in the planning meeting, eons in the past, is now being experienced in his humanity. Just like I thought it was a great idea to enter army, but was terrified with facing basic training, Jesus is looking forward to the next 24 hours and dreading the cost that he is about to pay for us. And this is where we pick up the story in Mark. Mark chapter 14, verse 20, or 32. And they came to an olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And he began to be filled with horror and deep distress. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. He went on a little farther and he fell face down on the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, this awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he said, anything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will and not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you stay awake with me and watch with me even one hour? Keep alert and pray. Otherwise, temptation will overpower you. For though the spirit is willing enough, the body is weak. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this glimpse into the life of Jesus, where he showed us the most stunning and the most revealing portrayal of his humanity. 
Father, help us to glean from it this morning. Help us to learn. And help us to be able to do what he did during this time where he was terrified, where he was in horror, where he was afraid, Lord. Let us learn from it and let us do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. We all experience this emotion we call fear. We saw it portrayed kind of humorously in the video that we watched right before that. Some of us worry about everything, and really, worry-based emotion is fear, isn't it? Some of you might have irrational fears. Some people are deathly afraid of spiders. Anybody here deathly afraid of spiders? You see a spider, you squeal and run away. I had a partner once and working for paramedics who was deathly afraid of mice. You never, ever, ever in a firehouse want to admit that you're afraid of something because you will be endlessly harassed at it. Somebody went out and bought a small fur-covered rat. It looked very real, and for somehow, I don't know if it had some type of motion detector in it, but if you got close to it, it would squeak and sound just like a rat. And people would put it in her pillow, put it in her sleeping bag, put it on the front seat of the ambulance. They would just do these kind of things to scare her to death. Some of you might be afraid of heights. I am actually, believe it or not, afraid of heights being a firefighter. I have just learned to do it anyway. I don't like heights. There are many different ways that pastors deal with fear from the Bible. One of my favorite is the acronym that fear is actually stands for false evidence appearing real. I like that myself. However, I really don't want to minimize fear, because, but I want to give you some tools that Jesus used here in the Garden of Gethsemane that'll help you. So how did Jesus feel, deal with fear? Well, the first way he dealt with fear is he called home. He dealt with it kind of like I did when I was getting ready to go to MEPS. He called home. Or simply put, Jesus prayed. Let's set up what's going on here. You know, there's a lot of focus in, in Christian literature about the beatings that Jesus took. We celebrate communion recognizing his sacrifice on the cross as a payment for our sin. But there really isn't a lot of focus on what happened in the garden. And to get a better understanding of what's really happening, we need to reference another gospel in Luke 4.13. Now, as Luke 4.13 is about to happen, let me give you kind of just a, um, a summary of what was happening. Jesus just got baptized. He's been identified to the entire nation as Messiah. Not only that, but he gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. The first person that has ever received the baptism of the Holy Spirit was Jesus himself. He is endowed with power from on high. Jesus then goes into the desert to fast and pray. And toward the, time of, the end of this time in the desert, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. Jesus passed this test with flying colors. There was no wavering in him at all. Got through it just fine. But let's keep a couple things in mind. The context of this temptation. Jesus had just gotten baptized and revealed as Messiah. He receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he's looking, ready, uh, looking forward to three years of ministry. So if you look backward in Jesus' life, he's coming off a spiritual high. You look forward in Jesus' life, he's going in to a spiritual high. He is on a spiritual high. He just got done fasting and praying. 
So there's no downside for him then. So at the end of this temptation, the Bible records um, this thought in, ver- in Luke 4.13 that says, When the devil finished all of his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Gethsemane is the devil's opportune time. Think about that. Jesus just spent the last week fighting religious leaders, arguing with them, trying to get them to see how wrong they were. But they're stubbornly refusing. They're the very people who should immediately recognize him for who he is, rejected him. These leaders have taken what is supposed to be the pure worship of God in the temple and turned it into a money-making scheme and a thing that is going to ensure their place in society but does nothing to bring people closer to God. Jesus is inwardly grieving over this. He even said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I weep for you. I wish I could draw you into my arms. I wish you would repent. He's grieving over this. And now he is facing the absolute horror. Him being God incarnate in the flesh knows exactly what is facing him right now. Every lash, every beer pulling, he knows all about what he is about to go through. Jesus is facing the devil's opportune time. And you see, the devil knows your opportune time. He's not going to come to you right now in church. He's not going to come to you during a revival meeting. He's not going to attack you when the pastor's over for dinner. He's going to wait till you're weak, separated, tired, exhausted, spiritually and emotionally vulnerable. And then he has you. And that is why Jesus was so adamant about his best friend staying with him and praying. That's why Jesus took this time to call home and get some reassurance from his father about his plan of salvation. Because his humanity, his his human side was screaming, run! Go get away from this. I, I don't want to go through this. I have to be insane. What was I thinking during this planning meeting of heaven? It says his humanity is screaming. His humanity is screaming, look, if you're not going to run, at least call those 12 legions of angels. Let them meet the crowd that's coming. They'll wipe those little spiritual proud smirks right off their face if they see 6,000 angels show up right there and stand between you and me. Yeah, they think that I'm not Messiah. I'll show them. His humanity is probably screaming this at him at this point. And that's why he went to prayer. Because Jesus knew if he listened to what his natural mind was saying, you and I would still be doomed in our sin. That's why Jesus didn't stop. He didn't get discouraged when his friend caught his friends sleeping. He didn't let this hinder his pursuit of God and the plan of salvation. And that brings us to our second point, is that Jesus pushed. What does that mean? Well, it's another acronym. He prayed until something happened. Push. You see, we give up too easily. You know, Pentecostals at the turn of the last century rediscovered this truth, to pray until something happens. Easy grace that that the church seems to um, live in today just teaches us one and done. You pray for it one time and you should be able to stand in faith that God's going to do it. Well, that wasn't the life of Jesus. Jesus was always praying. Always praying. And we think that we're being spiritual when we say stuff like that. But let's call it what it is. It's laziness. Spiritual laziness. 
Spiritual laxicity. It's the most deadly form of laziness because it affects your eternal destiny. But we see here in the life of our Savior, that's not what he modeled for us, nor did he teach us this. Parable after parable, in his own life, in his own ministry, he taught us to constantly pray, to constantly knock on the door of heaven. And he modeled the pathway to victory, and that is to live a life of constant prayer. Always. You say, well, I can't pray when I'm on the job. Sure you can. I can't pray when I'm in school. Guess what? You can. They can't, the TSA can't search you and figure out your praying and say you can't do that. I mean, you, you can take prayer at any point and do it. Jesus didn't give up. He knew the goodness of God. Let me show you somewhere else in the Bible the value of praying until something happens. The prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, he sees a vision that terrifies him to the point of him laying on the ground in a, in a flesh blob, not even able to move, speak, or do anything else. And so he lays there and he prays. He prays. He, he, he doesn't know what's going on, but he knows one thing that he should pray. And so as he's praying, he gets a visit from an angelic visitor who tells him, Daniel, your prayers, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Daniel, but you're highly esteemed in God's sight. And your prayers have kicked up a hornet's nest of spiritual warfare. This is John's inspired version, by the way. You've kicked up this hornet's nest of spiritual warfare. I, the mighty angel, had to fight for 21 days just to get to you and let you know that your prayers, from the moment they were formed in your mind and spirit, were heard by God. And he has sent me to encourage you right now that he is moving on your behalf in answer to your prayers. I'm here to restore your strength and explain the visions that are troubling you right now. And see, this is exactly what Jesus was doing. If you think the spiritual warfare and the persecution of Christians and all that, that spiritual warfare is really hot in our times today, imagine the spiritual warfare that was going on in Jerusalem as Jesus was praying in the garden. You have to think that all of hell rose up to try to prevent what was going on here. You've got to think that the devil pulled out every stop that he possibly could to ruin this somehow so Jesus could not die for the sins of man. And that leads us to our third point. And this third part can be some of the most difficult parts of what Jesus taught us about facing fear with prayer. Is that Jesus was willing to accept God's answer. He's willing to accept God's answer. Jesus called home. He prayed until something happened. And in the end, he accepted that answer. What was Jesus' prayer? Lord, please, please, please let this cup of suffering pass from me. Father, I know that we have a plan. But if there is a way that we haven't thought of up until this point that, I, that we can bypass the beating? Can I bypass the flogging? Can I bypass that part about hanging naked in front of the entire world, not even able to breathe as the life drains out of me? Can I, can I just skip that part? 
And if we're very honest with ourselves and each other, most of us have had that same prayer for some situation in our lives, haven't we? God, is there any other way? Do I have to walk through this valley of the shadow of death? Most of the time, a lot of the stuff we go through is self-inflicted. Sometimes God gives us this uncomfortable situation that everything within us cries and wants to run from. Ultimately, prayer helps us to say and mean the last part of Jesus' prayer here. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. If we pray and pray until something happens, God's going to provide a way. He's going to provide a way out and get you out of this situation. He's going to find a way around this situation. So you may see the situation, but you don't necessarily have to walk through it. Or, and most often, to be honest with you, he's going to walk through it with you. But you have to be willing to reach up and pray that Psalm 23 prayer and say, Lord, you are my shepherd. I shall not walk. You make me to lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside the still waters. You restore my soul. You lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Even if I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And this is the key, that because I know you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my, you fill my cup. You anoint me with oil and my cup overflows. And surely your goodness and your mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in your house forever. And if you've been to his will, you have one final promise that we see in the life of Jesus here in the garden. That said, angels came and attended him. If you make this your prayer, that I, I don't know what everybody's going through. And I don't, wanna, I don't want to belittle that. I don't want to say it's a small thing. But God has said, if you make this prayer, not my will, Lord, but yours be done, you have his promise that he will make every resource of heaven available to you. Oswald Chambers said when a Obedience is in the ascendancy. God will tax the remotest star and the furthest grain of sand in the universe if that is what is necessary for you to walk through something. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your own vulnerability that you showed us the, one of the weakest moments of your life here on earth, Jesus. We thank you for your humility. We thank you for your honesty. Because we can look at that and not buy into the devil's lies that if, some, if we're afraid that we're weak. We won't buy into the devil's lies that say, well, if you're afraid, you don't have faith. We won't buy into the, the devil's lie that you're somehow not even a Christian if you experience this emotion called fear. It is just part of our natural human nature, Lord. But the Bible also shows us how to walk through these times of fear. That we hit our knees and pray to you, Lord. That we pray until something happens. And then that we are willing and humble enough to receive the answer, no matter what that answer may be. Because we know 
no matter what, you're going to walk through it with us.